0: From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we
1: hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day.
0: Greg Combe was a minister in the Rudd and Gillard governments, and he had responsibility for climate change and energy efficiency. In his role, he endured the rigors of the climate wars, overseeing Labor's highly contentious move to put a price on carbon, which ultimately came to grief under the Abbott government. Long out of parliamentary politics, Combe has been appointed by Anthony Albanese to chair the government's new net zero economy agency. This agency, due later to become a statutory authority, has the task of promoting an orderly transformation as the world decarbonizes to ensure Australia shares the benefits of the net zero economy. Greg Combe joins us today. Greg Combe, we've got a multitude of bodies in the climate change and energy area. What precisely will this new body do?
1: It'll do several things, Michelle. One is, as you've pointed out, there's a multitude of bodies, but there's also a multitude of policies and programs across government at both national and state levels. But nationally, uh, the Net Zero Economy Agency, later to be an authority, will coordinate across government. That's one responsibility. But the two big pillars, as I see it, are firstly supporting workers who are impacted by the transformation of the economy that's you know, underway. And um, in particular, for example, in coal-fired power stations, which have been closing for some time and more will close, and uh, those workers and, and their um, local communities need support. So one of the responsibilities of this agency is to provide that support you know, through skills packages and training and advice. And the other major pillar of the work, though, is to try to capture the opportunities of the clean economy as it emerges. And uh, so as I'm already finding in my work, there are major transformational projects in many parts of the country uh, that will generate a lot of investment and a lot of new jobs. And trying to match up workers from you know, declining fossil fuel areas like coal-fired power stations with the new opportunities is one of our tasks.
0: Jim Chalmers, in a speech the other day, described the body's task as coordinating and managing major projects in the regions. So how will it uh, identify such projects and what will it do with the state and local agencies to deliver these projects? Can you provide just a bit more detail around
1: this? Yes, certainly, Michelle. So in the four months that I've been in this role, I've been travelling around the country to the major regions where there are emissions-intensive industries and coal-fired power stations. And um, what I'm finding is that Local communities, state governments, local governments, regional organisations, everywhere I've been have been thinking about these issues and the transformation that is underway and have proposals, plans, sometimes quite specific projects that will require investment and that can generate the jobs of the future in those regions. So one example of that perhaps is the South Australian government itself has a plan for the transformation of the state economy uh, that would involve uh, the development of hydrogen projects, and that's hydrogen that could ultimately be used in direct reduction iron operations of the magnetite that's in that region around Wyala, uh, and provide a green iron industry for the future, as well as export of hydrogen, possibly in the form of ammonia, Um, The overall plan also anticipates the continuing expansion of copper resources in the north of the state. Um, So there are quite specific plans around. And the Australian government, through the Net Zero Economy Authority, when it's established, um, will be obviously engaging with state governments, private companies, trade unions, local communities, regional organisations to help bring these transformational projects to fruition. And that might involve Australian government investment alongside the states and um, private companies. And uh, I can see so many opportunities for that in every region I've been.
0: Now, you've likened Australia's energy transition to the uh, magnitude of uh, the post-war reconstruction task. Just how large is this
1: whole project? Well, it's massive, Michelle, and it's an important place to start with this is just to appreciate once again, how significant fossil fuels have been to the evolution of the Australian economy and how significant they still are. So just for example, the total value of coal and liquefied natural gas exports in financial year 22 alone was almost 200 billion Australian dollars. And it's not just the significance to the Australian economy and the many regions that depend upon those uh, that extraction and export and utilisation of fossil fuels, but our major trading partners, which have also committed to net zero, they are the purchasers of that energy in the form of coal and LNG. And of course, that's Japan, and Korea in particular, but China's a big customer for LNG as well, Taiwan. So those um, Asian trading partners are hugely important. They've committed to net zero. They need to wind down over the next 20 or 30 years, their imports of fossil fuels and replace them with clean energy. Now they don't have access to renewable resources in the way that Australia does, So countries like Japan and Korea are looking to partner with Australia in the development of hydrogen projects um, for their future energy security. And that's a very big transition in our economy and a very big transition in their economy. And that's why I liken it to a a major reconstruction akin to a post-war reconstruction of the economy. We've depended upon fossil fuels to generate a huge amount of national income and employment and exports and that's fed into taxation revenue for the Commonwealth Government and royalties for state governments. It underpins uh, many of the important social things that Australians enjoy uh, through government budgets. We've got to be mindful that um, we need to transform our economy in a way to replace that national income and that's why it's a huge reconstruction.
0: So there are two big things here, of course, the, the local transformation, but also the fact that our main exports or some of our main exports are going to be dramatically undermined, no pun intended, in the, the next decades. How do you see the prospects for the export of coal, for example, by 2050? Will it, will it be non-existent?
1: Well, it certainly has to phase down and you would expect that steaming coal or thermal coal, which is used for coal-fired power generation both in Australia but largely our exports overseas, um, that will certainly need to phase down if countries are to meet their emissions reduction targets both in the interim and by 2050. And so the outlook for the thermal coal sector in Australia, of course, Uh, and I think the implications are pretty obvious. Metallurgical coal, which is an important part of our coal exports too, that's a bit different in that it's still the key uh, energy input in steel uh, production in China, Japan and Korea and Taiwan. And uh, uh, Until alternative technologies, for example, using hydrogen uh, to do direct reduction iron technologies. Until that's really commercially available, metallurgical coal is going to be around for a, a while, but you would certainly anticipate by 2050 these technologies will be in place. And similarly, LNG is very important too in this equation, Michelle, because um, a country like Japan and also South Korea, they depend upon our LNG exports for their energy. And they're going to need to continue to rely on those gas exports while they themselves are transforming their economy to reduce their dependence on LNG and have alternative forms for energy security. So, again, I think it underlines how difficult, complex, and but important this transformation is.
0: Moving uh, closer to uh, where we are in time, there's a general recognition that Australia is not on track at the moment to achieve its commitment of renewables delivering 82% of electricity by 2030. What areas need immediate attention to ensure that we do hit this target?
1: Uh, Well, uh, Minister Bowen, you know, has a a good degree of optimism about being able to achieve this and he's the minister responsible and I should say I'm not in my role um, directly engaged in this this part of the, the challenge but I think it's pretty well understood that uh, we've got some pretty significant challenges getting away the renewable energy generation that's required to hit that target. It's being limited by our capacity to deliver on the Extensions of the transmission grid. There are what's, as you'd understand, described as social license considerations there. That is basically taking the community along with this type of change. It is, as Minister Bowen's observed, I think the first time for many decades that Australia has undertaken an extension of the transmission networks. But there's another thing too that's important, and that is um, coordination, particularly in the eastern states. The energy generation, transmission and distribution systems have largely been state jurisdictional responsibilities, of course, for many decades. Um, there is, of course, a national discussion about it through a ministerial council led by Minister Bowen, uh, but we're really going to have to, I think, collaborate and knuckle down in order to be able to achieve that 82% target. and. Um, bring in the level of investment that's necessary both in renewable generation and the poles and wires that are needed to get to the users of electricity.
0: Now, you mentioned the uh, transmission grid. Everyone loves renewables in theory, but there's a bit of, uh, well, there's a lot actually of not in my backyard for the grid. How do we deal with this trade-off between uh, wanting to protect the climate and make this transformation, but also wanting to protect our landscapes and habitats uh, that people also value very highly?
1: I think um, in answer to that question, we need to improve the level of discussion, the amount of information that's available, the objectives that we are trying to achieve nationally and have a you know a national conversation about it and listen to what people are saying in the regions and what their concerns are and address them. This is a huge national endeavour and you need to take people and communities along with you and Ensure that people understand what the goal is here and why these changes are required. And I think it's pretty clear that, you know, between all of the governments of different jurisdictions and the private sector, you know, we just haven't got that right yet. And there's a a good deal of work to do yet, I think. And a you know, a, a clear communication strategy and provision of information, but being on the ground and listening to people and, and working things through with them is very important.
0: But do you think a, a national conversation is going to convince people when they are faced themselves in their communities with these very ugly pieces of infrastructure?
1: Well, I think it will certainly help, um, but nothing beats being on the ground. Um, it's a it, I anticipate that in the near future, a person named Andrew Dyer, who is the Energy Infrastructure Commissioner in Minister Bowen's portfolio, he's been commissioned by Minister Bowen to get around local communities where there are concerns and get to understand them better and provide government with advice about how to Try and get us on a on a better trajectory in in dealing with community concerns. So uh, I think that'll be an interesting report when Mr. Dyer uh, produces that.
0: Can we talk a bit about Snowy Hydro uh, 2.0? This project, of course, was uh, launched by Malcolm Turnbull. It was going to cost a couple of billion dollars. It's blown out to some uh, estimated nearly $13 billion. The timeline's blown out. How important is this project in the energy transformation, or would there have been an argument for just saying, well, it was a good idea at the time, but we won't go ahead?
1: Well, I think as people um, appreciate, if you've got variable renewable generation, solar and wind in large scale, it needs to be what's called firmed. And that is, you know, the variability of it, we've got to be able to fill the gaps when the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing, to kind of oversimplify it. And um, this snowy hydro scheme is a large scale engineering effort to provide that firming and it needs to be connected to the transmission network for the national electricity market to be able to discharge that role. And it is important. And again, it's another one where I'm not directly uh, involved with it in my role. Minister uh, Bowen is, of course, responsible for oversighting this Um, and he's expressed confidence that. it's a project that can be completed. These large-scale engineering projects are very complex and difficult, and it's not unusual that there are cost blowouts. And this, uh, unfortunately, looks a particularly significant one. Um, but it is an important project. In the meantime, it's worth noting, though, that other methods of, of firming supply, for example, through large-scale battery projects, um, these are accelerating. And um, the cost of battery technologies are currently coming down as, you know, manufacturing continues to scale up. And um, that's another alternative source of of firming up the variable renewable energy supply. Offshore wind is also pretty important in that regard. The wind resources offshore, for example, in Bass Strait, I'm told. you know, can provide pretty much large-scale, firmed, renewable power for Victoria and the national electricity market. So there's a lot of moving parts in this, but the snowy hydro is an important component of it.
0: So you've spoken about Australia closing down coal-fired power stations, but it's also approving new gas projects. Is this sustainable if we're to achieve net zero by 2050?
1: Well, we need to make sure that it is, and I'll go back to one of my previous observations. Um, we have very important partners internationally, for example, uh, Japan and Korea, that are large purchasers of liquefied natural gas from Australia. They do not have the renewable resources that Australia is endowed with, and they have committed to net zero emissions by 2050 themselves and they need a supply of energy um, for that transitional period while they're themselves decarbonising. And that's the importance of these gas projects. And you will note that a number of Japanese corporations and uh, Korean corporations, for example, are major investors in projects uh, for new LNG resources. And um, that's a context in which this needs to be seen. more specifically to your question you know for us to get to net zero by 2050 there needs to be either offsets uh, for any emissions that occur as a consequence of the extraction and and processing of this gas within our jurisdiction or the or and or um, the utilization of carbon capture and storage and uh, these are the major questions for these gas projects if if that's done Um, then we can have these gas projects and be a reliable energy partner for countries like Japan and Korea, uh, and all of us keep moving towards net zero emissions.
0: Well, carbon capture and storage seems to uh, really have got a bad name over the years. Do you think it's uh, still a credible and and useful route?
1: Well, uh, yes, it's been proven it's pretty difficult and it can be quite expensive, but technologically... Um, if there is a sound aquifer that can be utilised, um, for example, in Bass Strait in an exhausted oil and gas field, uh, when that uh, becomes appropriate, then um, you know I'm certainly advised. I'm not a um, geotechnician in this field, but my advice is that it is feasible and um, It is, however, expensive, but it is going to need to be one of the technologies that helps us get to net zero, the way that I look at it.
0: The coalition argues that nuclear power must have a place in the system if we're to reach net zero by 2050. The government says nuclear doesn't even belong in the debate. What's your view? Could nuclear become economic, given how quickly technology advances these days? And anyway, shouldn't we be lifting the ban on nuclear so at least it has a place at the table if it can prove itself worthy of that?
1: You're inviting me into areas where I certainly don't have a responsibility, and uh, I don't mean to be evasive about it, but I'm in a public service role, not a political role. And um, I think looking from the outside, I'd say this is more of a political debate than a practical you know, contribution to the energy transformation. So I'll leave that question to Min.
0: That's right. very diplomatic, Combe. <laughs> uh,
1: that, <that's> You've
0: <laughs> usually been a pretty forthright character <laughs> over the decades in various roles.
1: Well, this is a different role. And <laughs> um, being as forthright as I think is appropriate.
0: <laughs> the old dog... Uh, learning new rules. (laughs) Now, we talk all the time about the transformation in terms of energy, but to get emissions down significantly, what about other areas? What about the sectors of transport, of agriculture? Don't we need to do a lot more in these sectors?
1: Oh, well, the answer is yes. To achieve net zero, we've got to work across the whole of the economy in uh, the next two to three decades in particular, And I think a number of your listeners might be aware that the government has indicated that it's developing sectoral plans um, and consulting widely in the community and the private sector in relation to them. And there's six areas that are being examined. Uh, One is electricity and energy. There's also transport, industry, agriculture and land, uh, resources and the built environment. So these are six broad areas that the Australian government is looking at to investigate, um, you know, on the pathway to net zero by 2050, what are the possibilities in each of these areas um, of emissions within the economy uh, for us to decarbonise?
0: Just on this question of Australia being touted as a future green superpower, it's all cast in very general terms. We know that we have a, a lot of assets to to help us in this, but do you think that the concept is too vague and what to you does the concept mean? Can you give us some more specific examples of how you think this could work in the future?
1: I actually think that the expression of you know, of Australia as a renewable superpower um, pretty neatly captures the opportunity that we have, Michelle. And what I mean by that is that if you think about the things that Australia is endowed with, confronted with a challenge of this nature, we have abundant source of renewable energy available to us, cheap renewable energy, um, that other countries don't have. It's a major source of comparative advantage for us as we look forward into the 21st century and how our economy needs to evolve. Harnessing that, we can also utilise one of our other great endowments, and that is our mineral resources. And, and we are endowed with a um, you know, huge diversity of critical minerals and large, Scale um, magnetite and hematite resources, for example, bauxite for alumina, zinc, lead, copper, Um, all of these minerals will be in significant demand. And the opportunity for Australia is to put those two things together, our renewable energy resources and our minerals endowment and um, do much more value adding in minerals refining and processing uh, for export. That can replace our fossil fuel exports in time, in value, and uh, that's what I see as the renewable superpower opportunity. And I'm not unique in that; many have spoken and written about it. And that's one of the things that, in my role as chair of the Net Zero Economy Agency, um, I'm certainly concentrating on. As I've been around the uh, many of the emissions-intensive regions. People on the ground, local communities, local businesses, local governments, regional organisations, they are all recognising this opportunity. A key to it will be using our renewable resources um, to produce hydrogen and ammonia that will allow industrial processing and energy generation to take place. And uh, I think it's, you know, on a bigger scale and closer than many people anticipate. I I see great opportunities as I'm getting around the country.
0: I want to go back to something you spoke about at the beginning, and that is the transition of workers from these industries like coal, uh, who will find themselves out of jobs. They won't necessarily be able to get jobs in the renewable energy area, although obviously some would. You're, of course, a former trade union leader, so this is all very close to your heart. How best can we deal with this uh, transition for those workers? And is there a case for special measures for them that are different from other workers who lose their jobs?
1: On the latter point, I think the answer to that is yes. And if you if you just think about coal-fired power stations for a moment, um you know, as a consequence of government policy settings to reduce emissions and transform the energy sector, those workers will lose their job. And in those circumstances, I think governments and the community more generally have a responsibility to workers impacted in that way to ensure that their opportunity um, to find alternative employment or to retire with dignity, if that's what an individual might prefer, to gain the skills, to do something new and different. I think we've really got to work hard to make sure that we provide every support that we possibly can uh, to those workers. They're by and large located in regions like the Hunter Valley or um, Central Queensland or the Latrobe Valley or Southwest WA around Collie. And these are the places I've been traveling to you rightly point out my trade union past. I was 25 years a trade union official, and I've dealt with uh, many industry restructurings. And I think I can figure, um, you know, what additional measures government might be able to bring to the table to help people better than we've done in the past. But you know, that, that I think, you know, as an Australian community, we need to be particularly focused on that.
0: So that would be a quite costly program.
1: I don't necessarily think it would be particularly costly, um, but it's important, and I think the least that people could and should expect. And I should say, too, that the regions that I mentioned where workers are impacted, if you take Gladstone, for example, in central Queensland, um, everyone's been thinking about what to do, and there you've got... Rio Tinto with a couple of aluminum refineries, an aluminium smelter, um, Gladstone power station, the biggest coal-fired power station in Queensland. You've got Orica with a um, you know explosives and fertilizer facility, cement manufacturing. These are very emissions-intensive industries, but everyone's thinking about how they can change it, how they can maintain jobs. Recognise that power station will eventually close, how to support those people, but in the meantime, how to get the investment flowing in the industries of the future that will create the employment for those workers and their kids in time too. So I'm actually really heartened. As you'll recall, a bit over 10 years ago, I was the climate change minister in you know what the portfolio Minister Bowen now has, and it was like hand-to-hand combat in a lot of circumstances, with with companies that were resistant to the change that was coming, concerns amongst workers is totally different now. You know, the business community is in a different place, um, recognises the transformation is necessary and has their own have their own plans. Workers understand that it's coming. Um, I spoke at a um, governing body of the coal miners in the Hunter Valley a month or two ago they all understood the change that was happening, but they're looking for the sort of support that they would like from government and and their current employers to help smooth this transformation as much as possible. And I'm very committed to achieving that.
0: Well, as well as that sort of uh, feeling in these communities, what, what else did you observe about the mood of, of people that do face this sharp end, if you like, of, of the transformation. Is there a good deal of fear about? Are they resentful or gloomy? Or is it all relative upside, as you've just described?
1: I think there's, um, to generalise, I think there's widespread realism and recognition. This issue has been kicking around for years now, and, um, you know, companies are sending a different message now that they've you know, recognised that emissions reduction is important. Many of them, the you know, large corporates and international corporates are doing that because they're investors, institutional investors, are demanding it of them. You know, the governments have set targets, have got policy settings, got safeguard mechanism in place um, and it's leading to people in local communities recognising and understanding that the change is happening and thinking about how what what support they need. You know, it might be in housing. There's a lot of pressures in a number of these communities. And just to return to Gladstone as an example for a moment, they went through a boom with the development of the LNG export facilities on Curtis Island um, and they learnt a lot from it. And one of the things was that, for the massive influx of workers who might work on a hydrogen plant, for example, in Gladstone, um, the local community wants to ensure that there's sufficient affordable housing, and sufficient medical services and childcare services. You know, social needs for these local communities. Um, you know that can support them through this type of change, and uh, this type of change will take many years. And that's the level at which people I have found are thinking about it. And they're certainly not saying, no, you know, stop the world. They're saying, we know this is happening. Um, Here's what we think and here's what we need. How can governments and companies help?
0: Just finally, Greg Conbay, you referred back to your time as minister when uh, there was certainly a huge conflict around the whole energy and uh, emissions reduction and climate change issues. Do you think now the climate wars are basically over or do they actually continue, albeit in somewhat milder form?
1: Well, as I've observed, it's very different than 10 or 12 years ago, largely because the I think the Australian and international business community has recognised Reality that emissions must come down. Many companies and their institutional investors, of course, are setting their own targets uh, for emissions reduction and their own decarbonisation plans. So that's changed enormously. Um, But at a political level, you know, I, I don't. It might be a bit premature to say that the climate wars are completely over. I'm just noticing some of the things that the coalition is saying and uh you know so i think we ought to probably just watch this space but what i would conclude with is that this is irreversible i mean politics and political debate might go on about it to someone's advantage or disadvantage however what's happening in the real economy both here and overseas is irreversible this is happening now we need to focus on you know achieving our energy transition to a renew, firmed renewable supply, that nothing can happen without that. Secondly, we've got to be thinking about the policy settings that will incentivise the investment and job creation in clean industries, you know, as we have our fossil fuel sector decline in relative importance in the economy to get to net zero. We've got to be replacing that with Investment and national income in clean industries, and government thinking about the policy settings to achieve that. And thirdly, there's a huge financing task here, and uh, for both the private and public sector. And I'm certainly got my mind on uh, um, you know how how we might go about that in the years to come. But all those things are happening. It's irreversible. We've got a great opportunity in Australia to grasp. You know, the, the investment for the industries of the future and, um, you know, I know the government and, and, and certainly the agency that I head up, that's, that's a real commitment that we have, regardless of the political discourse that's going on.
0: Greg Combe, obviously a big job ahead. Thank you so much for catching up with us today. That's all from the Politics Podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now.
1: Our theme music is by Lee Roosevelt. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.